Hello and welcome to The Personhood Project. I'm your host, Aaron Tyler Hand. In this podcast, we explore poetry's ability to provide the tools necessary to process trauma, lead towards personal growth, and help reduce recidivism in the carceral system. If these topics are of interest to you, we ask that you follow us on Twitter and subscribe wherever you are currently listening. Today, we are joined by Arizona-based poet and essayist, Sean Avery Medlin. Their debut collection of essays and poems titled 808s in Other Worlds, Memories, Remixes, and Mythologies came out in 2021 on $2 Radio. In addition, they also have released two hip-hop albums, Skinny Black and I Never Left, both of which can be found on their website, supershawnavery.com. Thank you so much for joining me, Sean. Thank you for having me, Aaron. It's a pleasure. Yeah, I had the privilege of reading your book, about the time it came out last year, um, and I was kind of blown away by it. And I know in doing this podcast that I was like, having Sean on here, something I got to have one day. So I really appreciate you uh, agreeing to do this. Yeah, when you uh, reached out to me, um, I hadn't heard of the podcast before, but I immediately loved the uh, premise and uh, recognized more than a couple names in the uh, previously interviewed list. So, um, yeah, I was really honored, truly. Yeah, that's great. Just to kind of jump into things, I think the first thing I want to talk about, obviously, is your book, 808s and Other Worlds. I'm hoping you can share some insights into the subtitle, actually, uh, Memories, Remixes, and Mythologies. Maybe give us some insight into how that came about. Yeah, um, so I never had a subtitle in mind for the book until... um, signing the book deal with $2 Radio, and uh, they really wanted a subtitle for the book. So um, I looked at, you know, some other folks on $2 who had subtitles for their books and to, you know, maybe draw inspiration. And um, I wrote, I don't know how many subtitles, you know, I don't know, (laughs) 10 or something maybe, right? Just like, yeah changing one or two words here and there, right? And you come up with 10 different versions of one. And um, when I landed on memories, remixes, and mythologies, it felt like uh, those were the best words to describe the content of the collection, um, Mm -hmm. more so than like the words poetry and the word essay. Yeah, I mean, that totally makes sense because we kind of see these blurred lines and the book as a whole is kind of, it's not exactly poems, it's not exactly essays, it's doing these other things. So memories, remixes, and mythologies really helps lay things out in a way that almost reinvents what it's doing in a way. Yeah, that is really the goal, right? Help the, help the reader audience understand it that way too. I'm really interested in the idea of using the book or using creative writing to kind of create mythology, kind of create mythology around real people, around real memories. Um, I'm hoping you can kind of talk about what creating mythologies or kind of creating these ideas of mythologies is doing for you as a writer or did or was doing for you as a writer of the collection. Mm, yeah, thank you for the question. Um, I mean, I first heard... Um, of the um, biomythography, of course, from um, Audre Lorde, Zami, and mm-hmm. the spelling of my name. Uh, I also, there was a, a poet in my undergrad program, Sydney Edwards, 
who also had written a biomythography. And uh, I was fascinated by it. Just it seemed like um, so much of what I was doing as a young person when I was kind of writing these um, like little sci-fi and fantasy vignettes that were based on my personal life um, where, you know, a character who's essentially me is like having some sort of space fight with like, uh, <laughs> you know, my father or something, right? Um, yeah. So I was drawn to it because it felt like sort of what my imagination had already wanted to create. And I held on to that idea for years and years. And um, I've tried to write many different biomythographies myself. I think um, Adoids and Other Worlds is like a succinct offering of the best of like th that process, that like study for, mm -hmm. for years um, of trying to crack, you know, exactly what what it means to myth to turn yourself into myth like what is the um what's the purpose and then also um i think it also has all these other questions attached to it right of like what happens when we um turn reality into myth right that sort of removal from um history or sometimes uh glorification deification and i and i feel like those questions weren't questions I wanted to run from. Those were also questions I wanted to ask because I was asking them about other people, right? Mm -hmm. um, like Kanye West throughout the collection. So, yeah. Um, yeah, like, I mean, you know, again, I just have to say again, Audre Lorde as the inventor of the form really um, for sure is where I start with that. But uh, just trying to pull from all the ways that um, I think the black culture and black artists, the real hyperbolic way of telling stories um, and kind of using that to get all the way to the myth, right? From the hyperbole to the myth. Um, yeah, I think that's the best way I can answer that question. No, that's great. I think that definitely dives into a lot about what creating mythology is and how... I don't know, we see mythology as something older or like most people see it as like, oh, that's something that happened so long ago, but it's still so relevant now and keep taking mythologies, um, just like kind of like you said, um, makes me think of like the rap music and the, and the um, what's the word, the braggadocio-ness of it. While it's, like you said, it's almost creating a mythology. It's creating this idea that they're portraying. It's the same idea that you're doing here. Mm, yeah. Just kind of sticking with that subtitle, I wanted to talk about the importance of confronting memory and how um, remixing memory can be beneficial for you mm. as a writer. Mm. Especially just in our in our preliminary interview, you mentioned that you see poetry as a, a portal or a gateway into a healing journey. So I think of this idea as someone who's approaching memory when they're going into writing and understanding like this doesn't need to be the exact memory. I can remix things. I can kind of mix things up and create something new out of it. And I'm just hoping you can talk on that. Yeah. One of the things I tell my students lately, that's like maybe the most important thing when you're doing any sort of memory, personal narrative, trauma work in your poem is to protect yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think that like 
one thing I really learned how to do, and I do often in 808s and other worlds, is is protect myself. Um, as much as the book shows the wounds, uh, there's a lot more that I'm not showing people um, that I did write, you know, in previous mm-hmm. drafts and previous pieces. Uh, but the remix was about one protecting myself and then also it was kind of about finding the purpose of retelling the memory because on one level it's like okay i can tell a story i can tell a story about something messed up that happened to me i could tell a story about something that life-changing that happened to me but why and i think in the process of of remixing a, a memory right in the process of changing a name or an event or just omitting something or you know whatever i start to find out like why it's important for me to tell the story right um, yeah definitely and then it's like okay well i don't need to tell that part because it's not important to the main message or because that feels too vulnerable so maybe i find another way to um have the same like narrative event happen but I feel better about what I'm putting out into the world, right? And and that way, Remix really just became like a tool. Yeah, so it's almost as if as you were writing the memory, as the memory was coming out in you know, whatever creative form it was, whether it was poem or essay, it might get to a point where it gets to this rawness, it gets to this uh, emotion that you know you were kind of searching for, but that was for you, that wasn't for the reader. So you got there, you sat in it, and then you were like, okay, maybe the reader needs this thing. Like, I don't want to share where this went, so I'm going to, you know, take a hard right here instead of keep going straight. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, quite literally. Um, sitting with the with that, like, duality of this is for me, and also I do intend to release this one day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in some sh- some shape, form, even if I just read it one time in an open mic. <laughs> Um, yeah totally you know that's still like a a publication so you know what do i feel good about leaving in the world versus um what do i feel like the piece needs and then you know you just kind of (laughs) negotiate yeah totally um so at the time of our conversation right now your book's almost been out a year i'd love to talk about what this past year has been like kind of more specifically uh, now that this work is kind of out in the world, you you don't have these chances to go back and edit. You don't have these chances to go back and make those right turns anymore. Um, people are sitting down and reading with it. Uh, kind of how do you see the collection or kind of how do you see the growth uh, that you've felt within yourself since like everything's kind of out of your hands now? Mm. Yeah, it has been a journey like kind of watching the world receive 808s and other worlds. Mm-hmm. And it still feels really great uh, every time that I get a compliment or a picture or email or whatever. Um, it's really surprising because I didn't think anyone wanted to read this book. Yeah. Um, and I was really just going to um, DIY publish it with my friends. Um, and sell like 88 copies. I'm glad you didn't. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm glad I didn't as well. Um, 
but yeah, I, I think I've been I've been working on the collection consciously um, about four years, mm-hmm. and at a certain point, I think I was feeling really frustrated and not feeling like I was seeing other writing like what I was doing, and not feeling like I was getting um, well, and just not you know being published or given opportunities. So I was very much ready to DIY publish it when $2 um, appeared in my inbox. And that was a miracle. I'm very glad. Yeah. It's been great to work with them. Oh, I that's think, awesome. Um, what's really wild to me is the way that this book is connecting with people so far from like the source or the origin Right, like mm-hmm. I'm living in southwestern America, suburbia, <laughs> you know, black, queer identifying. It's like a very specific sort of experience, yeah. and um, the the whole way through, it, right? It doesn't really pivot, and still, um, folks are finding all sorts of entrances into the work, right? Mm-hmm. All sorts of empathies and um you know learning a lot i think from the way that i archive uh references and things and it's just a really humbling thing to watch you know it's really humbling it really makes me be like oh this is like bigger than me and you know that can be a complicated thing to sort of wrestle with when it's so much of you in it um but ultimately to witness the book be celebrated um like across the world uh, i have to you know i have to face the fact that like oh this is also much bigger than me and yeah that's eye opening <laughs> how's the the next collection coming on i know that's kind of like a boring kind of cliche interview question but i mean i'm just so curious as a as a fan of your writing yeah i appreciate the question um yeah, I've definitely been writing, trying to put together some sort of project since um, before even 808s came out. So like July of last year is when I really mm-hmm. like put my head down again and put myself on a writing schedule. And I have written, I've produced one manuscript thus far. Um, I don't think that's the next one that's going to come yeah. out, but it was really fun to write. And I needed to write it. So right now, I'm still keeping myself on a writing schedule and just sort of letting whatever comes out, comes out. Um, just like a big, like, generative period. Uh, yeah. And then, like, in a month or two or more, I'll, like, look over all of this writing and try and see if there's something in there that could be, you know, some glue in there somewhere. Some threads. <laughs> Totally. I mean, it, it sometimes it can be so hard to get those generative um, eras going in your writing. So, you know, like if you found one and just you just kind of let it ride without, uh, you know, purposefully stopping it. So totally. I understand that. Mm-hmm. Kind of going back to something you're saying a minute ago is like you're kind of blown away by seeing, you know, people connecting to your work who are so different than you. And one thing that really drew me to your work and is obviously such a big part of your book is your use of pop culture reference. Um, pop culture references are something I use often in my writing as well. Um, 
But I'd love to hear from you why pop culture has such a prevalent place in your work, or at least in that collection. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's so interesting. For the longest time, I was really only trying to write about um, hip hop culture and black culture. And what I learned through my studies of history, uh, I guess what I mean is like the cultural history of specifically North America and also from growing older and just sort of witnessing like a, a sort of peak of um, commercial hip hop mm-hmm. that to write about black culture and hip hop culture is to write about pop culture. Yeah, um, definitely. And I think, I think I maybe accepted that at some point writing the book. Definitely I've accepted that um, afterwards in a way that I haven't really had to think about before. Um, when I, like, for instance, like my writing about Kanye West feels so much more um, personal and sort of like, an issue of hip hop culture more than it feels like an issue of pop culture to me, but Mm -hmm. considering Kanye West being a, you know, pop giant of the last hundred years, then, (laughs) you know, it's like a conversation about Kanye West is also a conversation on pop culture. Right. Um, There's also other moments, right? Like there's like a little Boy Meets World reference somewhere. There's like a bunch of anime references, a lot of those. And I realized that all of those things too um, sit in their own little subcultures that ultimately make up like, you know, our pop culture at the time. Yeah. Um, I just feel like I've always been critical. I've always just been a critical... I've always liked to give my opinion on things, even since I was um, a kid. So when I feel very invested in something, like I feel like very much a part of hip hop culture. I very much feel like it's mine. I'm a participant. I create it. I critique it. Right. So for me, it's like, it feels like a duty almost to to yeah. speak on it. Um, and maybe again, that's like a little bit of like, Right, some of the, some ego coming through, but um, not also to say that I think that what I have to say is any sort of end all be all opinion, um, but definitely to say that um, I don't. There's there's a f- only a few authors poets whose critiques on things outside of literature. I pay attention to and um, I would like for them to also read my opinion the way that I read their opinion. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Totally. Who wouldn't? (laughs) One of the, the, the pop culture references, or I guess just kind of cultural references that I found most interesting was in one of the pieces was when you connected James Baldwin to the Naruto anime. Um, I'm just kind of hoping you could kind of talk about like pulling past and present and kind of mixing them together and what that kind of does for you or for your writing. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, you know, the the Naruto. Um, well, there's a couple pieces in the in the book that are based on Naruto, but the paradox um, poem. It's kind of like an essay and poem. Is something I had been working on, probably since like the specific episode of Naruto that inspired me aired, right? So probably since mm. like 2013 or 2014. I think wow. eventually what what helped me see the whole thing was the Baldwin quote. And it's not like I had not read that quote before. And it's mm-hmm. not even like I hadn't read The Fires next time before because mm-hmm. I've also had read that. But I think at some point, it just clicked to me that like, oh, like what I was experiencing was this, what, what is what Baldwin is saying. It's coming to consciousness about sort of the state of your country as a young person or whatever age, right? And it's that mm-hmm. feeling of being on fire. And so at first I was like, I can't put Baldwin in this, you know? And then I was like, okay, whatever. I'll put Baldwin in the um, epigraph. Mm-hmm. And then it just felt weird to have it in the epigraph, like. So then I just put it as like the first sentence, and I mean, it only made sense to me because it was emotionally true. Yeah. Um, and I was like, I know that this is like <laughs> James Baldwin right before like a long explanation of a two thousands anime, but. Um, for the story that I'm trying to tell, which I know very intimately, I think this is the best move. I can't say that like I see other connections, right? Um, but definitely within like my own sort of like intimate lexicon of images and and metaphors and things like that, like those two next to each other felt very right. I think I probably found that Baldwin quote like in high school, in the time period that I'm talking about. So Mm -hmm. um, things just kind of aligned in a really cool way. No, yeah, I mean, those are such magical moments as a writer, just like something you would never think goes together, but something about the time in a writer's life when these two things just happen to, you know, appear next to each other in a mind or on a paper or something. So something clicks and it's just like, yes, these things make sense together. And then it gets written in a way that, you know, someone like myself who is, you know, I don't watch anime, but I felt like it was such a beautiful piece and I could see that connection too. Like you, 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 you're able to pull things that are seemingly so far apart and connect them and then have a reader who may not be familiar with part of it, and then they feel connected to it too. So yeah, that was beautiful how that can happen. Truly. Thank you for that. The next thing I want to talk to you about is something that I brought up in a previous episode with Kate Meisner. Um, and it's, I would love to talk about you as a writer and kind of when an idea comes to your head, how do you know what mode it goes in? Because you write... Um, songs as a rapper Mm. you write essays you write poems Mm. and i'm just hoping you can really give some insight into hey this idea is in my head i want to do this with it or i want to do this with it Mm. yeah 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 sometimes um 
I really, really know by the, uh, I guess, like the first couple lines or sentences. And I use rhyme a lot. So rhyme sometimes is a helpful indicator, but sometimes not. My poems rhyme, obviously. My songs are going to rhyme. Um, and even I even use rhyme in my essays sometimes, right? Or actually, I would say more than sometimes in 808s. So um, it's kind of just a feeling. The thing that is still really... Um, like almost demoralizing about that is that ultimately after I like write something, I might feel like it was a thing, one thing, and then it might end up being another thing. Mm -hmm. So um, there's plenty of, and, and to bring up paradox, like the, the piece with the Baldwin quote that uses uh, Naruto as a metaphor, um, that piece particularly, the reason it's like an essay and also a poem is because it had been through numerous rewrites in numerous forms. It was a rap song at one point. It was just an essay. It was about three different poems, you know. And ultimately, I was like, after kind of exploring everything that it could have been, <laughs> I was mm -hmm. like, okay, this big chunk of essay text and then this little skinny poem is what it's going to be. Um, so yeah, I guess really the best thing I can say is I follow my instinct as best I can to the end of it. And then I sit with it. And sometimes I'm like, eh, the instinct pushed the thing into being, but it's got to be something else. No. Yeah, that's great. I think, I mean, I mostly ask as inspiration for the participants in our program because, you know, they'll get to listen to this episode after it airs and, a lot of them, their introduction to the written word is rap music, and a lot of them are influenced by rap music. And you know, a lot of the poems we see come through the classroom, you know, could be rap songs just as much as they could be poems and things like that. So, one thing that I like to try to help them do is just try to get them to think about like what should this medium be, or what should the medium be for this thing in my head. So, just trying to help them think about diversifying how they write or just like what might help out. So I appreciate your insights into that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. You know, something um, I always say to, to students and often get debated on, but you know, I believe it to be true is um, every rap is a poem, but not every poem is a rap. And um, also by that, you know, doesn't mean that every rap is what you would consider a good poem. Right. <laughs> but for sure, rap is always going to follow poetic structure. Um, poetry is not always going to follow rap structure. I don't think I could disagree with that. Like, I mean, I see other people might like, you know, want to some poetry purist or something, but I think that's completely true. I, yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. This is kind of going back a little bit, or maybe kind of tying all of it together, but I'm hoping we can talk about the vulnerability of putting work out into the world. Like you have a book out in the world, you have two albums out in the world, your writing is definitely personal. And while we did, as we talked about earlier, you might take a right turn, you're still putting yourself out there quite a bit. So I'm hoping you can just talk about the importance of being vulnerable in your work or sharing that vulnerability with people. 
Yeah, I really started performing and writing a lot of poetry due to youth slam poetry in downtown Phoenix. And um, youth slam and slam in general, I would say, really encourages a very vulnerable sort of writing, right? Like, if you're trying to win slams, right, it's usually good to have a poem that'll make people laugh, a poem that's very vulnerable, and then, you know, whatever else you want. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so I was always kind of, like, taught to, like, tell stories, usually your story, and, you know, like, tell the truth, like, get free, like, you're on stage, like, um, use, it, use it as an opportunity, uh, you know, much in the mode of, like, the confessional poem. Yeah. Um, so I, I practiced that, I mean, probably since I was, like, 16, writing poems, right? It's always been sort of my mode. I think that it was around... Um, doing undergrad and realizing um, how sometimes, specifically in the slam world, it did not always feel good to like go up on stage and to be really vulnerable and to be rewarded for it or not rewarded for it, right? Like what happens when you don't get the snaps and you don't get the tens and you told your childhood trauma, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so... You know, at some point I had to learn how to like be vulnerable for myself um, in a way that would serve the poem or the song and hopefully also the the listener, the reader, the audience. Um, and I think I was maybe talking about this earlier with like this sort of like, you know, using remix to protect yourself idea. Um, I had to decide like, okay, what things are useful for me to even say out loud to the world? Like some things I need to say to a therapist or myself or to the person who was in the situation with me or, you know, whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. Like healing is such a nuanced thing, right? Like I, I feel like I was very much taught that like, oh, if you like put your truth in a poem it will heal you which is like not true inherently like (laughs) that's actually crazy far from the truth um Mm -hmm. but i still retained that like vulnerability and that like just source material being my life and all those things i kept all those things from you know slam culture and also like rap culture right that's like what's encouraged in rap music as well i kept all those things because i did authentically feel like i wanted my art to be a space to say the things i had not said or felt like i could not say like that was true that was authentic to me despite Mm -hmm. you know all the ways i was like sort of maybe boosted up or 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 demoralized as a youth, I still really wanted to do that in my heart of hearts. So then, you know, these questions of like, um, what what is a useful vulnerability? What is a vulnerability that will reward me emotionally, like before it does anything else? Um, and those are hard questions, right? Like, <laughs> and these are yeah. questions you have to ask about 
each of the the delicate situations, the the memories, the the wounds, the trauma, the things that you want to share with the world, you have to interrogate each of these separately this way to really get to a place of like, you know, I feel good about it. And then, you know, there's also what a lot what's popular and what a lot of artists do and what um, you know, the art world and the audience rewards is like to not think about it and to like bear it all. And, you know, and then like everyone's like bawling their eyes out and everyone's like, you know, this is the greatest like book of poetry ever written about abuse. But then it's like, how's the poet doing? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're the one writing it that we should think about. Um how are they doing as someone expressing this? How are they doing as someone who just put this trauma into the world as opposed to how are we as consumers taking in this and feeling about it? It's, wow, that person revealed so much. Are they okay? Did they process this properly? Is this putting on the page? Yeah, that's definitely something. I mean, I as a reader, I don't think about that often enough probably. Like that's something as consumers of poetry or just creative writing media in general we should think about yeah we're i mean you know we're not taught to you know i I think we really are rewarded um for for not for you know for the the artist is rewarded for you know pulling down the curtain and the audience feels like enamored or um you know, trauma bonded with, with the artist because, you know, they, they did do all that bearing. Um, yeah, I, I would like that to change definitely in poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it is healthy. <laughs> <laughs> do you find, I mean, again, I just want to keep coming back to this idea of like you write to the emotional point and then you feel comfortable taking that right turn and saying, Hey, these are, these are what I want the reader to read. Like they don't need all of the vulnerability. I think that's, you know, that's something super important for people to think about, but are there times when you get to that vulnerable point and that right turn doesn't feel right for you? Like it doesn't feel like the right thing to do. Like it's, it's like you want that vulnerability to stay in this piece. You want the kind of the emotions to stay in the piece. And um, maybe it doesn't see the light of day. Like maybe it'll never see a book or be read at a slam or something, but it just kind of sits in, you know, the, the draft folder because that is where that piece of writing needed to go. Yeah. There's things that, um, I wrote with the intention of being in the collection and they're not in the collection (laughs) for that very reason, because I was like, Mm -hmm. you know, um, I don't think I need to uh, tell this story this way or at all. Um, And maybe later I I will, or maybe I won't, Um, but they have been written. I think also what happened a lot in 808s was this moment of getting to the emotional point and being like, okay, I could take the right turn, but well, actually I should slow down. Getting to the emotional point, taking the right turn, not liking how the piece ended up and trying to backstep, backtrack, Mm -hmm. you know, and and stay on that path. Uh, I think actually one of the best examples of, of a poem that went that way for me 
was Iggy and Cardi Prelude. Um, that poem went through a ton of rewrites because I kept turning away. Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually I had to be like, okay, this one, it doesn't work if you turn away. <laughs> so Yeah, totally. I got to try something else. <laughs> no, I think that's just something super important to think about. And obviously, like as this podcast or like my goal behind this podcast is, you know, get the writers and the program that we're working with to like think about writing in new ways and think about like, hey, it's okay to share some things. But as past episodes, we've talked about like, maybe writing isn't the only way to get things out. Like, as you mentioned, therapy, like there are other like tools, like just seeing uh, writing or creative writing or poetry as one of the many tools for expressing things and feeling okay, like saying to yourself, this isn't a vulnerability, this isn't a trauma, this isn't an emotion that I think is best for poetry. It might be best for talking with a counselor therapist it might be best just putting in a personal journal to help you know get it outside of me but not for someone else so just thinking about you know how we can take writing and do many things with it or how we can take a story how we can take a trauma and do many things with it that gets it out of the body but doesn't necessarily mean that like hey poetry is something where you have to mine your trauma you have to go to the deepest point of your trauma and expose it like it doesn't have to be that no I, I don't think it has to be that. And I think um, I understand uh, why there is this sort of belief that it does. I think that, of course, some of the best art in general comes from uh, like these deep places of um, things that are traumatic and also things, you know, that are um, loving. Mm-hmm. And I see, especially why young people really want to, you know, just uh, open up the closet, so to speak. <laughs> but um, I really feel like what's better is to take inventory of your trauma and to start your healing process and to then write about it. Because, I mean, you're... I'm just going to be honest, like, you're going to write about something better when you have, like, an understanding of it, of your feelings, when you have, like, stability, um, revisiting the memory, right? Like, all these other things, like, they might get you some really great raw material, and that might get you far, but it also might um, really be re-traumatizing, you know? And there's ways to also get the raw material without like going through the re-traumatizing first no yeah that's that's such beautifully said and i think that's very important to think about is like what where am i with this and how is that emotion going to be coming out on the page if i want to write about it and like should i be processing more internally with you know with help from someone before putting it to the page like maybe writing it down one time as a draft that I keep to myself is something that I sit with for a while and then come back to it when I've processed things. So yeah, that's, that's very well put. Thank you. 
From here, I'd love to transition to the second half of the podcast. Um, for first-time listeners, in the second half of the podcast, we have uh, the guest read their work, and then we have them read work that was inspired by their work. So the other part of the Personhood Project is that we take a we take the work from the guest into the jails and prisons here in Central Texas that we are working with, and then we teach a class kind of based around that poet and their writing, and then we have the the participants in the class uh, write poems inspired by it. So we have f- a few poems to read f- from people inspired by your work, but I'm hoping you could start off by reading a few of your poems. Could you read the poem you mentioned earlier, Iggy and Cardi Prelude? Yeah, yeah. So this is Iggy and Cardi Prelude. It's one of the, I believe it's the second piece in the collection. Um It starts with an epigraph from a news tabloid. Iggy and Cardi Prelude Iggy Azalea holds hands with new boyfriend, Playboy Cardi. When Iggy and Cardi hold hands, my college friend says, I'm not into white guys. Another blacked video is uploaded. Non-black girls tweet, My black boyfriend said that I can say nigga. Their boyfriends respond, black girls just jealous. I'm vacuumed back to 2007. My girlfriend is from Minnesota. Her acne is Confederate red, which is American red, like the flag my father works for. So I don't question her parents' 6 p.m. curfew or her gossiping friends, always glancing long ways. Instead, I gloat, glad to be marble dark, like night skies beneath a silver moon, reveling in the chess squares, reveling in the chess squares of our skin, a dream celebrated in curriculums that our locked fingers concretize. Young Jeezy belts, you know I keep that white girl, Christina Aguilera. And my girlfriend is indeed a genie in a bottle, a granted wish granting wishes. I'm Corey from Boy Meets World, but I have a 4D curl pattern. My Topanga does not have full lips. Hers are tight as her mother's eyebrows the night my father and I knock on her door to confess that I ran a few miles that night, to lie naked and curious, both of us too afraid to have actual intercourse, not because her dad would call me nigger, but because the unknown is simply terrifying. Plus, Neither one of us know how to put on a condom. When Iggy and Cardi hold hands, I remember most of the cheerleaders were non-black and light-skinned. I admired them at lunch from a red gazebo, their nails maroon, their hair strawberry and honey maple, their suntans more pale than brown paper bags, but never as pale as my girlfriend whose skin burnt scarlet as the sinner's letter. I didn't understand the brand we burnished, but I picked the iron myself while watching TV, probably Power Rangers or something like that, where a white girl wears pink, whirling pink ribbons. 
Paparazzis snap pictures of pop stars showing affection, and I sit on a bus in the eighth grade holding my girlfriend's hand before her parents order the driver to separate us and ask the teachers stand watch at their doors during passing periods as surveillance. I learned to love running away from mirrors, a cold, sweat, dead sprint. Sometime after, I write this poem, wanting to be witnessed. Thank you so much for reading that. Wow. I see a lot of kind of what you mentioned in the slam, like you have the vulnerability, you have the humor, and it kind of all ties together in this piece here. Yes, thank you. Before you get into it, I just wanted to read the writing prompt that we uh, gave to the participants kind of surrounding this. Sean Avery Medlin uses their poem Iggy and Cardi Prelude to reflect on a previous relationship and some of the anguish that relationships cause them. Sean compares the relationship to the famous couple of Iggy Azalea and Playboy Cardi. This comparison allows Sean to comment on what it was like for them to be black while dating a white woman. Think back to a past relationship that caused you pain, and then write a poem that shares with the reader about troubles you had in the relationship, as well as the lessons you learned afterwards. If you can, try to compare your relationship to a celebrity couple. Wow, that's an awesome prompt. <laughs> Thank you. I love, uh, I love writing prompts for these, kind of based off the poems. Yeah. That's really cool, um, especially like <laughs> to ask them to base it off, if possible, right? To use another celebrity couple. That's cool. I wonder if anyone will, ever will connect with that. Yeah, so I mean, it's the perfect time to remind people that these writing prompts are on our website. So if you're listening and you want to revisit it, please check them out. We have all the writing prompts for um, all the episodes on there. So if you're ever stuck with your writing as well, hop on and see what inspires you. Would you want to read your next poem here as well? Yeah. Let's go with Hidden Cloud Remixed. Oh, yeah. I've spoken a little bit about this poem, too. It's another poem heavily inspired by the anime and manga Naruto. Hidden Cloud Remixed. Among mountains where storms roar and clouds cover peaks, there's a whole village of niggas. In my world, we've been singing, I wish I could buy me a spaceship and fly. But in other world, we did so without buying or dying. Here, we arrived with our culture and our knowledge of weather intact to prosper secluded and free. Here, we teach our young to command lightning, bend wind and water to their liking, seek their literal higher calling. Here, we did not lose millions to the open sea. Here, there are no prisons or police. Here, Wu-Tang killer bees sharpen their freestyle skills while sword fighting, stunting like all rappers should. Tucked off in our own paradise, a country of thunder, autonomous and distant from those asunder, where the fruits of our labors are not for someone else's shelf. If we go to war, we set the terms. Our work and our time is our own for once. 
We who weave weapons from discharged electricity of nimbuses and shape small cities amidst the wisps of stratus clouds, pooling together our power like a fantastic panther party. We eat what grows and thrives in the valley thousands of miles below. Our children read books that recount our heritage from warfare to wayfarers, to marauders who wrestle us away from rights and homelands, to representatives who rewrite their words and agreements, generations of struggle, succession of riches, crimes and miracles happening in our community. Here, we tell the young, the old, the hopeful, the cold, that they have the freedom to fly faster than a streak of white heat simply because us black sky splintering folks can. Thank you so much. I love hearing you read. It's such a such a treat getting to hear it like kind of one on one here. Yes, I love I, to read my work. I write everything. I think Melissa said this in her episode. I write everything with the intention to read it out loud. So um, yes, I'm glad yeah. to read these with you for you and also for the podcast. Thank you so much. Let me get into the writing prompt based on this one as well. Hidden Cloud Remixed is what is called a prose poem. That means that the poem takes the shape of standard paragraphs instead of traditional poetic lines. This prose poem is used as a way to reveal what a utopian society would look like to Sean. It is a place without the past horrors of slavery and a place that has nothing but the best music and most beautiful scenery. If you can imagine the most perfect place in the world, what would it look like? Write a prose poem about this utopia and be sure to include the sights and sounds as well as the people who would be there with you. Mm. Another great prompt. You know, <laughs> hearing that prompt also makes me want to share a little bit about the um, just the process of writing that piece, if that's okay. Yeah, please. I would love to hear it. I'm sure everyone else would too. Yeah, so um, Hidden Cloud Remixed was not at all my first choice to put in the book. Um, and instead, what I really wanted to put in the book was this critique of Naruto and its representation of Black or sort of like ambiguously Black characters. Um, ultimately, what I did because all of my friends were like, we get why you're critiquing Naruto, but also like, didn't you love Naruto? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever. That's also why I'm critiquing it. But, you know, ultimately, um, I did decide that instead of like, you know, I mean, this, the book is full of critiques of all sorts of people and things and industries, um, countries, right? Like... <laughs> All sorts of critiques. So ultimately, instead of, you know, giving another critique to the book, I was like, all right, like, let me like pursue joy or imagination in this like space of like, sort of like pseudo blackness in Naruto, right? Like these characters in this village, the hidden cloud village that it referred to in the title, they're not like ever really confirmed or denied to be black characters. Their skin's kind of dark. They have black hairstyles you know, but it's never really confirmed that at night. So instead of, you know, uh, taking that opportunity to 
point that out. <laughs> Instead, I was like, okay, well, what if they were black? What would I want it to look like? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a really freeing question that actually I used a lot, a lot of other places in the book where I was like, okay, like this thing sucks, but like, what if it didn't? <laughs> like I, I could write about that too. <laughs> I mean, that is also a way of kind of working through things. It's like, hey, I understand things are bad, but like, what could the good look like? Like, how could I make the good like a reality? Like, what is that like? As I kind of mentioned, the writing problem. What is that utopia? What does that look like? So, yeah, I definitely saw that in this piece and in those other um, pieces in the collection. Yeah, it's definitely a way to put the power back in your hands, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, instead of, you know, feeling like, I'm going to write this poem about how I felt powerless to this thing and how it upset me. Instead, it's like, I'm going to write this poem about, like, what I imagine this could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, beautiful. Could you read your last poem for us, please? The How to Make Trap Music? Yes, yes. How to make trap music. Turn up gunshots. Plug in Melodyne. Bridge the noise between being shot and discovering the wound. Compress a dope boy's ambition with 808 drums. Remember, someone died for these 16s. Introduce the verse with tire screeches. Build brand new, fresh out the box kicks. Smoke strong the whole studio session. For inspiration, study sirens as symphonies. Record kitchen appliances for snares. Sample local evening news. 14 shot in 48 hours. Notorious downtown drug house shutdown. Lay the hook like a trap. Once heard, no escape. Test the track at a strip club. Test the track again at another strip club. Add the producer's tag. YouTube search how to make hi-hat triplets. Make a SoundCloud account. Upload weekly. Watch a docu-series on crack cocaine in Atlanta. Blast the master track. Remember, 25 to life without parole is the minimum sentence for those who are arrested living this song. Lastly, visit any university. Peep what's blaring from a white kid's car window as they drive by in vehicles with license plates that inmates press. Trap hits echo across yards, college, prison, etc., If your music plays there, start over from the top. That ending, wow, thank you. Here's the writing prompt for this poem. While at first glance, Sean's poem, How to Make Trap Music, might come across as a single how-to list, a closer examination shows all the ways that they masterfully work in cultural commentary. This commentary speaks to many things, including racial segregation, white privilege, criminal justice reform, classism, and so many other topics important to Sean. Write a how-to poem about a topic that you know a lot about. In the steps of the how-to poem, try to work in social commentary about topics that are important to you. 
Mm. Yes. I like, um, I'm, I'm, I know I'm commenting on almost every prompt, but <laughs> um, I really like the, the way that the prompt recognizes uh, some of the, um, yeah, like sarcasm of the poem. Um, yeah, you know, totally. Some of the, the ways that the voice is um, playing. You definitely have a great command of voice in all of these poems, and you can kind of see how they tie together into a collection just through the the use of humor, the use of you know the pop culture, the use of the emotions that we've kind of been talking about, and they're just all wrapped together in a way that's like, yes, these poems make sense together. Hey, that is for sure the goal. <laughs> <laughs> um, for those of you who are frequent listeners or who have listened before, this might be a little different than how we've done things before. So typically we'll have the guests kind of read a poem and then we'll read poems inspired by it. Most of the time I'm the one who kind of goes in on the back end kind of deciding like, oh, this one kind of fits here. This one kind of fits with this prompt. But uh, for the poems that came out of the classroom on Sean's work, I didn't want I didn't feel like I could, you know, necessarily put them in boxes. Uh, so I figured I would change things up here. Just, you know, a little remix, as things would say. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so we had Sean read the poems first, and now we're going to read the writing that was inspired by their work. Let's see. Could we have you read? Let's start with Happy Feelings. Could you read the poem Happy Feelings for us? Yes, I'd love to. Happy Feelings. There aren't no happy feelings in the air. So lately I've been searching for happiness through my prayer. Holy Father, can you hear me when I'm down on my knees? I need a bridge over troubled waters. Save me, please. I'm just a lost soul trying to find his way back home. But it's all good. Tell me when the sun gonna shine on this nothing ass motherfucking life of mine. Grandma, it's been 20 years since I've seen your face. Do me a favor. Ask God if I'm included in his grace. Cause I'm feeling abandoned like the last man standing. So much poverty and pain. This ain't the way I planned it. All I wanted was to make a little money and quit. Take care of people and grow old with grandchildren and shit. I'm still happy even if my cases don't get dropped and remain sane even if I never make it to the top. Wow. Thank you for reading that, first of all. And yeah, wow, that's the a, a perfect word for the end of that poem. I think it, yeah, for those of you um, who maybe don't have the poem pulled up in front of you, again, it'll be on the website if you want to look at it. But after this center stanza, which is, Grandma, it's been 20 years since I've seen your face. Do me a favor. Ask God if I'm included in his grace. Then we get these seven coupleted lines that are just like really like kind of like hard hitting coupleted lines that, you know, are kind of rapid fire of emotion here. Mm. One thing I like too about those. Um couplets or definitely the start of the couplets is that this stanza because i'm feeling abandoned like the last man standing is like there's no enjambment it's not in stopped and it also comes after a stanza break where the last line has no enjambment and no in stop so it's really like 
the poet is really telling you like uh, here rhythmically to really speed up and get into it. And I think that causes the, the rhyme to start hitting harder. It starts punching more till we get to the end, you know? Yeah. Something about that, the speed and the rhyme just kind of ramps up the emotion at the end. And while it kind of ends on this, this higher note almost like it starts off kind of in this lower place but we kind of end in this higher place like the kind of ramping up of emotions kind of feel like something that you know could ramp up in a negative way but it takes us to a place a little unexpected it takes us to this happy place where it's it ends i'm still happy even if my cases don't get dropped and remain sane even if i never make it to the top but like the ramp up uh again expects or like leads one to expect you know this kind of negative emotion but yeah i really appreciate how they kind of subvert our expectations here yeah i mean you know titling it happy feelings starting there aren't no happy feelings in the air (laughs) yeah and then by the end of the poem you know we get i'm still happy even if my cases don't get dropped it feels to me um, like a a choice to be happy at that point. Mm-hmm. Like, like the poet has has detailed to us, you know, as they call it, this nothing ass motherfucking life of mine. Yeah. And uh, they've listed many reasons for which they like could very well not be happy. But mm-hmm. at the end of it all, they're like, "Nah, I'm still happy. I'm." Right, I read that as like I'm choosing to be happy. <laughs> yeah, and totally. Also, um, you know, and remain sane even if I never make it to the top. Uh, you know, thinking about this idea of, uh, you know, the rat race and the way that so many um, young men, black and brown men, get into the carceral system because uh, they were trying to make money for their family, like the fastest, most accessible way possible, which was something mm-hmm. that you know, the law considers illegal. And mm-hmm. just the the resignation from that, right? And just being like, I don't really need it. Like, I'm not gonna lose, I'm not gonna lose myself if I don't get to that like imagined top. Yeah. Um, it's really freeing. I mean, I hope that the poet f- felt freer after writing this. Yeah, I mean, I think someone reading the poem could feel that freedom. So I, too, hope that the the writer felt it when they got there. Would you want to read another poem for us? I love the title of this one. Could you read My Mother as Danny Trejo? Yes. I also love that. I I double-taked on this title when I first saw the document. My Mother as Danny Trejo. The roots of a Mexican, deep in the Aztec land, the blood that shed just to get to the promised land, strong and brave with the head held high, eyes of wisdom that never lie, bond by unity and united she stand, open in heart as she gave her hand. It's such a it's a short little poem, only six lines, but you can feel the passion for the mother from the speaker of this poem. It's, I think the rhyming end rhymes are really help, you know, convey this emotion, this, this love for the mother. 
Yeah, yeah. The commitment to the end rhyme really makes it song-like, really, to me, like, brings home this, like, um, more um, traditional sense of the ode, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, uh, praise of someone or something in verse. Um, This is definitely in verse. I really like, too, that this poem skirts all of the, I mean, the bloodshed, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It mentions it. That's all we get. And be, because it's not impor- important for the poem, it's not, it doesn't mm-hmm. define the mother. And it definitely um, does not, like, it's not necessary for the full picture, right? We do need to know that that things were difficult but most importantly we want to honor this woman yeah i mean i think the honoring as you said is the biggest aspect and they kind of did as you mentioned earlier like they kind of mentioned some of the deeper emotion of things of like how they got there or just like what it's like being mexican-american in this culture and the bloodshed and like kind of the 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 turmoil of you know living in that culture but then they say no i want to focus on the good i want to focus on what makes my mother this beautiful person and i yeah you can really appreciate that they don't linger in that space and they they choose to focus on the beauty of it yeah they move on immediately you know it goes the blood that's shed just to get to the promised land strong and brave with the head held high so, you know, we immediately center on the the image of the mother, um, almost like almost like we're watching, we're we're seeing her while these things are happening, right? Like while she's going through this difficult journey to get to the promised land, and um, what what we're given of her is her her strength and her bravery, um, high praise, I think. As someone who <laughs> writes a lot of poems to my mother, I really admire that this poem does so much in such little space. Yeah, and I think a lot of that work, too, is kind of the titles. It's it's a funny title. It's a fun title, a very invocative title, My Mother as Danny Trejo. But just thinking of... Danny Trejo and all he's accomplished as an actor and as a celebrity and just thinking about like m- the the writer saying my mother need deserves to be held up that high as well my mother is just as important as this person is just is doing as much as this person has ever done I think that's super beautiful yeah, it's a good thing to point out like the work that the title does truly, truly does. It sets up it, it you know, and I'm a lot like the work in 808s, right? Like my own work, like um when you do things like this, you are relying on um the reader, listener knowing this reference, right? But the poem itself still works great if you don't know who Danny Trejo is. Mhm. Mhm. Exactly. Could you read another poem for us, please? Could you read the poem, Four Letters? Yes. Four Letters. Fear, the mighty four-letter word, sword tips drip blood. Fear, 
gun barrels smoke bullets. Fear, fist punches crush bones. Fear, for a four-letter word fear invokes fear. But the world turns from different letters. Beauty is found when flowers are placed in the barrels of guns, when handshakes are born from fists, when plowshares are forged from swords, four letters very different. Love. Thank you for reading that. Just so people understand kind of how the poem is set up, if you don't have it open in front of you, it's divided into two stanzas. One is kind of the fear section, and then the second stanza starts with the but, and then the last word on its of the final line is just love on its own, which is a counterpart to fear being the first line, the only word on that line. One thing that really stood out to me in this poem is the line, beauty is found when flowers are placed in the barrels of guns. Um, I love when writers think about how a line fits on a page, and in this line, it stretches out further than the other lines. It kind of sticks out in a way that almost mimics what the line is saying, and in this way, it works really well. It's kind of like we can visually see that flower being plucked into the end of that barrel of the gun just by extending this line out. Yeah, so I, it, it adds a lot of power to that line by having it stand out in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was also going to point to that line as like a big turn. Mm-hmm. In the poem. I mean, but the world turns from different letters. I I guess would be like where the the poet starts to take the turn. But really, I think like emotionally and um, structurally, the poem really like takes a turn at that line, right? For the reasons yeah. you're pointing out, the length of that line is the longest line on the page, mm-hmm. um, and it's also like no. Uh, and stop, no enjambment. When so many lines before that had lots of punctuation, and this long line flows all the way to the end, no pauses. We also then move on to the last four lines that all start with capital letters, but we do- still don't see any enjambment or end stops. So I feel like we're meant to. St- to still sort of give a small space um, at the end and the beginning of the next line, but the capital letter sort of is what gives that um, what gives that small space instead of the the punctuation. If you know what I mean? Yeah, no, totally. I, when you were saying that, I don't think it was like the first thing that popped out to me. But I was thinking, like, wow, that's such like a a cool way to play with line break and to play with how the reader is accessing the lines and the new lines is kind of having each line be its own world, but not have that end stop. But then when they get to the next line and they see that capital letter that starts it, they it naturally kind of makes them pause. And it's just a different way that I haven't thought about playing with the pauses on the page. That's such that's such a cool thing to do. Yeah, I I this poem rhythmically is incredible. This first stanza, right? Like we get 
like we have three lines in this first stanza that are end stopped in the middle of the line mm-hmm. just so we can get the word fear like and jammed at the as the last word of three lines right yeah. and we move like right after fear we move into like these words just that could there could be um some pauses here but they just run straight through gun barrels smoke bullets fist punches crush bones like so the syllabic matches there Mm-hmm. you know punches barrels ah yeah. i love it i love it yeah and just like forcing the reader to stop at that word fear at the end and sit in there for a minute and you do it three times in a row it's just it's really invocative for such like a a short little you know stanza it's this doesn't look big but and there's not a lot of words in it but having the reader sit in those fears as well as playing with the syllabics in the lines that follow. Uh, yeah, brilliant work there. Mm-hmm. Hats off. Yeah, totally. We have one more poem, uh, If I Lose. Could you read that for us, please? Yes. If I Lose, dedicated to my family and supporters. If I lose my life, do not mourn my life or demise cheer that I had the chance to record life through my eyes. I hope I brought more smiles than frowns. I hope I uplifted all the lost souls who were down. If I lose my freedom forever, condemned to captivity, I hope regardless where I reside, I still promote positivity. I hope my name is respected as a king. My blood is royalty. I hope my friends and loved ones don't omit me and regularly exercise their loyalties. If I lose my mind, search for the source of which I became insane. Did reality heap too many burdens on my shoulders? Did I finally break from the strain? If I lose my ambition and passion, that's the hardest thing to swallow. My heart's always been too strong to give up on tomorrow. If I lose you, I must carry on. I have lost before, though my heart will not allow me to express it. My heart will forever mourn a beautiful mind in captivity. Another poem where that ending really, really gets you. Mm. One thing I wanted to point out now that we've kind of gone through them all is that while none of these poems like directly related to maybe the prompts I wrote, I feel like your writing or at least your the three poems that you shared with them inspired a hope. I think something that connects all these poems is there is a hope inside of them. Like they may start off kind of in a bad place, but by the time they get to the end, we see this hope. So just thinking about your writing and kind of what it's doing and how it inspires that hope is just a really cool thing to kind of think about. Mm, Yeah. Um, I had not thought about that. That is very humbling, you know, to think that something I wrote could give them light in a dark place. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd say the word hope, but that, I mean, maybe just because it was so prevalent in this poem, but 
the way they use it in this poem is so expertly done. Like we see the word, I hope, um, repeated a few times throughout this poem. And uh, again, for people who might not have it pulled up, it's one big block stanza, but it's one sentence long. And we kind of feel that emotion pulling through and the hopes and desires and the, the wanting for more, the wanting to be better that is kind of pulling the reader and I assume the writer through the poem. Hmm. One thing that I noticed about this poem reading it is a little similar, I think, to maybe some things we said about happy feelings. Um, it definitely feels like the result of reflecting on an unknown future. Yeah. Um, and accepting that unknown and choosing through that to still hold on to these um, motivating feelings, right? And happy mm -hmm. feelings, it's, it's literally happiness. And in this one, it's these feelings of like hope and legacy and remembrance that are kind of keeping this person grounded even though uh the future before them is hazy yeah and they really pull the reader in through it i mean that kind of goes through the uh like as i was mentioning earlier it's one long sentence like we, we i feel like as a reader i'm kind of getting walked through the haze like i'm kind of getting you know like you're in a fog and you can't really see what's going on but i have this guide that's kind of pulling me through as the reader that is you know this clearing of vision for the speaker for the for the poet in the poem yeah yeah you know reading it out loud and reading it just on the page too like uh, when i read these earlier this one does feel congested um mm -hmm. and it's like of course because it's a block it's one block stanza you know i don't know how many lines this is i didn't count definitely more than 10 um and it's like all a run-on sentence right so um it's just thought after thought stream of consciousness in that way and it does feel very much like oh we're here and then we're here and then we're here um and i think that's probably reflective of the poet's own like psyche around this subject yeah right? totally I'm just thinking about the place they're kind of writing from and the the everyday of, you know, not having the control and you're just kind of like you're programmed to do this and then this and then this and just feeling as a writer, hopefully like they're seeing this kind of clearing coming up and it's kind of like reflecting in their life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I also think that like something this should be pointed out too, because we've had so many conversations about, um, you know, being vulnerable and for who and, you know, all these things. And the uh, epigraph for this one is dedicated to my family and supporters. Um, and I think that's really important too, to, to remember that this is a poem for an inner circle, right? Um, this is something 
like we're being let in on this um, message to this person's loved ones and supporters. Yeah, that's that's a beautiful way to think about it. Just being like, this is as dedicated to them, makes it feel more intimate, and that we're being led into this intimate moment. I think we should all sit there for a minute and we can wrap up with things. Um, I want to thank you, Sean, for sitting down with me. I also want to thank the incarcerated folks in our program that shared their work with us, as well as Humanities Texas and Libertine Johnson Foundation for making this project possible. A special thank you to our sound engineer, Nathan Parnell, and graphics designer, Jules Tunnell. Until next time.